The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At The Village Square, we believe big things can happen when ideas collide inside the bonds of mutual respect. We're building the town hall of the 21st century across the partisan divide. At the Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. When most separate, we gather across color, creed, and ideology. Listen, at the Village Square, we make pigs fly. Welcome to the Village Squarecast. This is your host, Vanessa Rouse. Thank you for joining us for Truth and Trolls, how a lie will travel around the world while the truth is pulling its boots on. This is a throwback episode from one of our Dinner at the Square events that was held in January of 2019. This event was facilitated by Neil Skeen, who's had a long and impressive career in journalism, and you'll hear a fun introduction with more about that in just a minute. Three panelists join Neil for this discussion. First, Aaron Schruckman, Executive Director of PolitiFact. PolitiFact was created in 2007, and the idea was to fact-check through the Florida presidential primary in 2008. We were supposed to go offline 11 years ago, today. What we found is that people really enjoyed this type of journalism. Next, we hear from Dr. Michelle Ferrier, Dean of the School of Journalism and Graphic Communication at FAMU, and also the founder of Trollbusters. But the letters that I received kept coming. Every couple of months, there'd be this little letter bomb in the mail. And when I first got the first one, and maybe even the second one, I'd shrug it off as many journalists do and say, this is just part of the job. However, the letters kept coming, and the letters kept becoming more and increasingly threatening. Whoa, that part was heavy to hear. I think it's easy for us to not think about the people who are doing this hard work and making big personal sacrifices as they try to keep this essential part of our democracy intact. I think this is something that I personally take for granted. Anyway, back to our panelists. Also joining the conversation is Bill Cotterell, Tallahassee Democrat's capital curmudgeon, who's been in journalism and in Tallahassee for many, many years. And you'll hear more about that soon. I'd say, well, where did you get that? And they'll say, well, it's all over the internet. Uh, Oh, well, hell, if somebody took the time to type it on a keyboard, (laughs) it's got to be right, you know. And if I'm not going to run with it, I must be covering. You know, one of my favorite things about this program is the real laughter and clapping from people who were sitting right next to each other in a packed room of neighbors coming together for great conversation in person. Funny that this was recorded just a year and a half ago, yet it feels like a whole different time period. Does it throw anyone else off when you hear this or you see people on TV and crowds and acting like normal? My hope is that when people listen to this episode a year and a half from now, 
clapping in a room together will be normal again. And people have to think back to now, like, oh, yeah, we were all on Zoom at this time last year. My personal prediction is that our truth problem outlasts our corona problem. Anyway, we can't wait to get back in person with you. In the meantime, we hope you enjoy this still very relevant topic, this throwback episode on truth and trolls, the fourth estate, First Amendment, and fake news. Here's Liz Joyner, Village Square's Executive Director, and Bill Maddox, Village Square's Board Chair, to introduce the program. The subtitle of our program tonight, I I think that we all really deeply understand the wisdom of the old adage, a lie will travel around the world while the truth is putting its boots on. Um, So we liked that, so we looked it up. We thought it was Mark Twain. We dig Mark Twain. And one of the things we found out is that that was actually one of the first lies. Um, and, and sometimes it's attributed to Winston Churchill, but he didn't really even say it. It was probably a barnstorming Victorian preacher named Charles Spurgeon, who is finally getting his due now, uh, who made the quote popular, but even his quote was likely derived from author Jonathan Swift, who wrote, falsehoods fly and truth comes limping after it. And I, I think we all see that today. Um, I expect that none of these gentlemen who talked about this had any idea where we'd be now, and we think we're at a really important crossroads, and we hope that we'll hear some truth flying tonight. We basically just have one rule here at the Village Square, and that is no, yay, a team clapping. Um, So one of the things we've noticed in a room like that, we try really hard to get politically diverse people who disagree because we think disagreement is a good thing in democracy. And so it's a really normal thing when somebody on your team says something you like, you go, yay, and someone on the other team says something you don't like so much, and you go, "Mm." hmm. So we ask you to do none of that tonight because that sort of reinforces where we are. We ask you to hold your opinions lightly for the next 90 minutes. You can go back to wherever you want to be after 90 minutes are over, Um, but if you can just sit on your hands just a little bit. So tonight's program is made possible by the generous support of our season sponsors, Johnson & Blanton and the Tallahassee Democrat. Our sincere thanks to them for their support of the Village Square. Yeah! As you probably know, the Village Square is a nonprofit organization that depends on the generous support uh, of our community to provide you with programs like tonight, as well as a wide variety of free programs throughout the year. So if you're already a Village Square member, we thank you for your generous support that allows us to continue to do this meaningful work. And if you're not yet a Village Square member, please see me or see Leslie or Liz afterwards, because we'd love to help you Uh, learn more about what we're doing and uh, why you should be involved with us. Um, So, and by the way, your membership card gives you access to deals from cool restaurants, bars, and businesses around town. It's now my pleasure to welcome to the stage our moderator for tonight's um, event, um, who is really one of my all-time favorite people in Tallahassee. Neil Skeen, for those of you who don't know, is a longtime member of our community who has just returned in some respects from working for a time in Chicago and is back in our community, and I am delighted to see him back. Neil is a very esteemed journalist, 
Um, any resume that you see or biography of him that you see of him will mention the fact that he was Capitol Bureau chief for what was then the St. Pete Times, now the, the Tampa Bay Times. He was the editor of Congressional Quarterly. He's done all sorts of interesting things apart from his work in journalism, like helping the moot court team at FSU win various championships. But the most important thing that you need to know about Neil is not something that is regularly found on his bio, and that is, he is the former editor of Hustler. <laughs> now, you need to know how I learned this, because after all, tonight is all about fake news, right? And you're probably thinking to yourself, this sure sounds like fake news to me, okay? But about 10 years ago, soon after I had moved to Tallahassee, my son was involved in, uh, high school son, was involved in a musical theater production at Young Actors Theater. Woohoo! Yay, Young Actors! Okay, and he was there in a production with Neil's daughter, Katie. And we learned as parents that there was going to be a cast party at Neil's house, a pool party, for all the cast members. <laughs> And my wife said, hey, do you know anything about these skeins? And I said, I know Neil is a really esteemed journalist, but if you want me to, I'll look him up on Google to make sure it's safe for our kids to go. So I looked Neil up on Google, and lo and behold, the number one item was a, was a headline from Vanderbilt University. Get this. It says... Former Hustler editor Neil Skeen to speak on such and such day at Vanderbilt. So I draw the same conclusion that all of you drew <laughs> minutes ago. I go to my wife and I say, do you realize that our son is going to be, has been invited to a party that is being held by the former, a pool party, by the former editor of Hustler? <laughs> And I don't know what it says about us as parents, but thinking that this was true, we still let our son go to the party. <laughs> well, as I got to know Neil better, I learned that, lo and behold, the student newspaper at Vanderbilt is called the Vanderbilt Hustler. <laughs> so it wasn't after fake news after all. It was just a case of real news that was falsely interpreted by a naive news consumer. I hope you're not naive news consumers. I know you're going to enjoy tonight's event. And part of the reason you're going to enjoy it is because it's going to be moderated by my friend, Neil Skeen. Is he still your friend? Bill was always a friend, and um, I'm sure one day perhaps he will be again. <laughs> uh, I, I will say that the other part of that story is that I do claim credit, however, for the creation of the other hustler. Um, and the reason is that in my junior year at Vanderbilt, uh, and I confess this now, uh, I wrote a story about Nashville's most famous stripper, Heaven Lee. Um, <laughs> who performed down on Printer's Alley. And um, we ran some pictures of her. Um, most of them, she had clothes on. But so this was an article. And so we had this story with these nude pictures in it in The Hustler. And that was in October of 1971. 
In January of 1972, this guy named Larry Flint started a magazine that featured women with no clothes on and called it The Hustler. I think he stole the idea from me. <laughs> so that's, that's how that all started. I am glad to be back in Tallahassee. Um, the uh, forecast is for uh, the temperature tomorrow in Chicago to be minus 12, uh, and that's the high. The Lincoln Park Zoo uh, will be among many closings tomorrow, although they, have, they also specifically announced that there will be both indoor and outdoor access for the polar bears. So um, t tonight, as you can see from the, uh, from the slide and from uh, what Bill and Liz have said, um, we're going to talk about trolls and truth. Uh, we have some people, uh, we usually try to present a spectrum of views here, uh, however we have no troll. Um, so I will do my part to try to represent the viewpoint of the trolls as best I can. Um, we're going to, you may have seen this format before, we're going to bring the panelists up on stage one at a time, sort of Johnny Carson style for those of you who are old enough to know what that means. Um, our third panelist, so I'll start at the end, our third panelist will be uh, someone known to many of you, perhaps most of you, um, as a result of his many years in the press corps in Tallahassee, Bill Cotterell, who is here, um, an avid, there you go. And I just want to make clear that he is a curmudgeon, but not a troll. Uh, preceding him will actually be a newcomer to our community. Uh, who has been here since uh, August, um, and uh, she is the new dean of the journalism program at Florida A&M University, Dr. Michelle Ferrier. Um, she is here. Uh, and uh, I think you'll, um, you'll be really interested in her particular experience uh, with trolls, um, as well as journalists. But first, um, we have, uh, I do have my PolitiFact hat. Uh, I wrote, I actually wrote some pieces for PolitiFact in 2008. They won the Pulitzer uh, in 2009 for their work in the 2008 election. Um, and so um, they, the only Pulitzer they've won is for the year I was actually writing for them. So <laughs> you do the math. Uh, but um, PolitiFact is one of uh, three really prominent fact-checking websites. Uh, it sort of originated the genre. The genre. Uh, Bill Adair, who was then with the St. Petersburg Times Washington Bureau, came up with the idea. And uh, it's now a national franchise with partners in other states. When we first invited um, uh, Aaron Sharakman to join us tonight, um, he said he would do it, but he would have to finish in time to do live fact-checking of the State of the Union address. It took considerable effort by Liz Joyner, but we managed to get that postponed. <laughs> So we have Aaron all to ourselves tonight. Uh, Aaron uh, is the executive director of PolitiFact. Uh, in Saint He's in St. Petersburg. It's the largest fact-checking organization in the United States. Um, he leads uh, its growth and development into other cities. He manages his outreach to news uh, partnerships, which they have, uh, and their new initiatives and product development. He's been with PolitiFact since 2010. Uh, he served, uh, he has served as editor of Florida PolitiFact, I believe, uh, and also served as editor of one of their uh, products, Pundit Fact. 
um, which is dedicated to checking claims by pundits, columnists, bloggers, and the hosts and guests of talk shows. There is probably no harder job in America than doing that. So I hope you will join me in welcoming Aaron Sharachman. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Uh, it's great to be here. Yeah, the uh, State of the Union was supposed to be tonight, so that was had me a little nervous. Luckily, we can talk. But if the president does happen to tweet in the next hour and a half, don't tell me. Don't let me know, because I don't want to have to run off and uh, do anything. Um, how many, just so I can sense of the room, how many people have visited PolitiFact are familiar with who we are? Great. Um, so my next question would be, how many of you think you've shared something online that's fake? Okay. How many of you, how many of you have seen friends of yours share something online that you think is fake? Okay. It, it starts to make us think a little bit about the problem, right? Um, PolitiFact was created in 2007, and the funny thing about PolitiFact, the story was, it was supposed to end 11 years tonight, ago. We, the idea was to fact check through the Florida presidential primary in 2008. We were supposed to go offline 11 years ago, today. What we found is that people really enjoyed this type of journalism, that for some reason, maybe um, that journalists have kind of lost their way a little bit in saying what's true or not. Maybe it's because we have a more corporate ownership structure and people are afraid to say what's true or not. Maybe it's that journalists were asked to do way too much and didn't have time to figure out what's true or not. But you got these stories in newspapers that would be something like, um, President Donald Trump says uh, there's a crisis along the southern border with uh, hundreds of uh, members of ISIS crossing every day. Uh, immigration uh, activists say that's not true. The Trump administration says it's true. Uh, immigration activists say, no, it's not true. Story's over. As a reader, how are you supposed to understand what's correct or not? What do we do in return, in response? We just go back to our holes, our go back to our corners. If you were likely to believe Trump, you believe Trump. If you were likely to believe the immigration activists or not believe Trump, you believe the other guy. We convince no one. The role of the journalist there is almost nothing. So PolitiFact said, let's up upset this ecosystem a little bit and let's say what's true and what's not. Let's take a stand. And that work is difficult. And I think it really speaks to the problem and the place we're at today. So PolitiFact is, as Neil said, the largest fact-checking organization in the United States. We employ eight journalists. <laughs> eight writing journalists. We have, we have editors. So we have, we're total 11. Okay? That, does, that should not inspire confidence, right? But it speaks to how difficult this work is, right? A typical fact-check for us takes one to two days to do. One to two days. Now, we're pretty good at it. We've had guys, uh, two of our staff members have basically been on the ground writing fact checks since 2007 for 11 years. If there are people who are better at fact checking, I don't know them. And they still, so they might do a fact check in six hours. Okay. How the hell, sorry, are you supposed to be, are you supposed to be able to do a fact check when you're scrolling through a Twitter feed or your friend's Facebook page or you're watching something on cable news? How? 
there really is no good answer for you. I'm sorry. Um, but what I, I think what I'm saying is we have a, we have a kind of a fundamental crisis. And uh, as, as a society, um, we haven't done enough to even address it, admit it, and begin to think about how we can deal with it. Misinformation isn't only a political problem. That's the one thing that I really think that I want to hammer home. This is a problem in all walks of life. Anyone see the Fire Festival documentary on Hulu or Netflix? This is a great example of misinformation. Basically, this is, uh, and, and what misinformation is, is fraud, right? So this is a guy who wants to put on a concert in the Bahamas. And what he does is he spends a lot of money to make this beautiful promotional video saying, come to the Bahamas for this awesome concert. And it has all these models, and it has like pictures of planes, and you're landing on a private island, and you're dancing with like wild pigs, and it's great. It's great, okay? It's misinformation. It's fraud. What happened is the people who went there got none of that. There was no private island. There was no private jets. Um, instead of being served five-course meals in cabanas, they were in FEMA tents getting cheese sandwiches. It illustrates the point here that we kind of think this is in a political context. And especially since 2016, when it all came on our radar, we only think about this in the political context. But we need to be thinking about it in every single way. And the way that I worry the least about, quite frankly, is Russian propaganda. Now, that's what we talk a lot about. But we don't see as much of that at PolitiFact as we see bad guys looking to make a buck off of your eyeballs. Okay? Uh, I also want to say, anyone offering a quick fix is lying. There is no quick solution to this. There's no quick tech, tech solution that says we can just solve this misinformation crisis um, by, if you just go to this one website and check this out, or you even go to PolitiFact. Again, uh, we're eight journalists, 11 total, writing stories. We wrote in 2018, I think we wrote the most fact checks we ever wrote in a year. It was about 1,600, 1,600. Very proud of that number. Um, if you think there, uh, how many people think there were only 1,600 uh, false statements made in the world last year? No one, right? Um, we can only cover such a little small percentage of ground. Uh, and one of the things we've learned over time is uh, what we need to do at PolitiFact uh, is kind of be an evangelist for the truth and to be, go to audiences like this and talk about how you can be your own fact checker put us out of business by um, being better at understanding what's true or not, okay? I want to share a story. This is not about misinformation, but it is about how uh, information spreads online in a way that might surprise you, might scare you, um, should concern you. We wrote a fact check at the beginning of this year. It was of Donald Trump. And Donald Trump had said, made a claim that Chuck Schumer repeatedly supported uh, voting for border walls, barriers, whatever you want to call it. And only when I got elected did he change his mind. Okay? And so we fact-checked that statement. And I'm not going to go through the whole fact-check. It's not the point of this. Um, we found it to be mostly false. So basically, we said that uh, Chuck Schumer, actually, the, the stuff he supported pre-Trump, he still supports. Um, he doesn't support the stuff Trump specifically wants, which is different than the pre-Trump stuff. You don't have to take my word for it. Read it at politifact.com. Send a letter to the editor if you don't like it. Um, some people didn't like that fact check. Uh, some conservatives did not. And so uh, there was an article written in a conservative publication called The Daily Wire. 
that said, basically, PolitiFact got this one way wrong. Completely fine, legitimate, cool. We're, we're big boys and girls. We can take it um, uh, and, you know, bring it on. Within minutes of that article being published, it was simultaneously shared on over 30 different Facebook groups, reaching millions and millions of people, all with the same text, all with the same link. It was shared on the right news, conservative news, pro-American news, Donald Trump is my president, the United Patriots, the real Patriots, the conservative, lady Patriots, the angry Patriots, fed up Americans, and on and on and on. This was, an, this was orchestrated. If you, were in your, if you followed one of these groups in your newsfeed, you would think that like, you know, maybe Liz posted the link in her Facebook group saying like, hey guys, you should read this. But what happened was somebody, I don't know who, I don't know for what motive, has access or controls at least all of these 30 pages and maybe who knows how many more, posted the same link with the same text. This is, there was nothing organic about the way that message spread that was anti-politifact. It was fake. Again, I'm not saying the story was fake, but if you think about that, how easy it is to spread information online. One of the stories I like to tell is that uh, 30 years ago, say, to be a journalist, you needed to work at a place that had the resources to make a huge capital investment in a printing press, satellite antenna, radio antenna, camera equipment, whatever. And so they created a club, a club of journalists. Now, I'm not saying the club was good. I'm not saying the club was bad. But everyone essentially played by the same rules in the club. They banged the, their fork on the plate when someone got out of hand, and we all kind of went back to our corners and did our thing. Today, every person who has a phone acts as a journalist. A lot of them may not even think they're being a journalist, but they're committing an act of journalism every time they post on social media. Why? Because they're, they're telling a story, just like a journalist would. That is really good in a lot of ways, right? We've seen a lot of uh, information. We know a lot more about our world today because people can share things individually through, without a filter of the country club of the media. But it has also created lots of pockets of bad and evil where people can manipulate and obfuscate and mislead and do worse. Do worse. This is what I'm really worried about. Uh, at PolitiFact, we have been fact-checking uh, with Facebook for two years. After the 2016, so in, during the 2016 election, we saw this stuff online, this nonsense, the Pope endorses Donald Trump, so forth and so on. We ignored it because we, we, like probably everyone in this room, knew it was false. What we quickly realized is not everyone knew it was false. And I'm giving you the most extreme example, Pope endorsed Donald Trump. There's lots of other ones uh, that I, we see every month that are not as extreme. So, for instance, Nancy Pelosi was taking her CODEL, her congressional delegation trip, to Afghanistan. There was like eight congresspeople and 93 family members going on this trip. That was a story being shared online. What was the, the idea is that this wasn't some business trip. This was a vacation. Well, the 93 was completely made up, completely false. Another story sh shared by Chuck Woolery online. Nancy Pelosi spent $100,000 on alcohol on our flights between San Francisco and, the, and DC. 100,000 bucks. Completely made up, completely false, but shared over and over and over again. 
So we've been doing this with Facebook for, for two years. I'm going to explain really quickly how the program works because I think they've done a terrible job of explaining it and most people don't know how it works. On your newsfeed today, anything you see, you can mark as like defamatory or like uh, uh, wrong, bad content or something. You can also mark a story as potentially false. So if you see something in your newsfeed that you say, I don't think that's right, you can report it essentially to Facebook and say, hey, I think that's a false news story. What that does, and you should do it if you see it, I, I, I suggest you do it, it, it flags it to fact checkers like PolitiFact, who have the opportunity to then fact check that article. Um, so let's say it's a quote, um, uh, there was, I was thinking about this, there's so many fake quotes online of George Washington said this, Ronald Reagan said this, even Donald Trump said this, they're usually all wrong. Um, if we saw that, so basically if you say, I think that's false, we could then fact check it. If we agree it's false, what happens is, and this is the scary part, it doesn't get as high in your newsfeed. Facebook makes a decision to move it down. Now, this is where I have to tell you just a little bit about newsfeed, even though I'm not a Facebook employee. Your newsfeed, so when you log to facebook.com, you have something like 3,500 things you could look at at any given time, 3,500. All Facebook does, or what they tell us, who knows, but I, th I think this is true. They just rank them one to 3,500, and they rank them based on what you typically do. I like photos. I like pictures of kids. I like uh, links. I like to share stories. They just rank them in an order that they think you'll like. If you see, a news, if you see an article on your newsfeed that is false, it'll mark it down. So it'll put it at the bottom. So that's what we're doing with Facebook. We're going to keep talking about this and other, other bits of misinformation. I look forward to the discussion going on. Um, I hope that wet your whistle. And Neil, back to you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, I'd, before, we, um, before we move on in this, I'd like to get you to um, tell us just a little more about the truth-finding process. Sure. So PolitiFact is rating uh, statements, assertions, uh, on a scale from true to pants on fire. You don't want that one. You don't want that <laughs> one. But, uh, so tell us, uh, tell us a little about the process. If you were, yeah. were live-checking... If Liz hadn't managed to postpone <laughs> the State of the Union and you were live checking, tell us a little about how you would do that. Yeah, so um, a couple things uh, right off the top that um, the truthometer, as we call it, is not a scientific instrument, right? <laughs> I can't just hold it up to somebody and it like registers a rating, right? There's a lot. Of, uh, we work really hard to try to make it as sciencey as possible. Um, but that's because we have a huge process. So basically the process starts uh, really quickly. We identify what we want to fact check. So in the president's State of the Union, we'll hear uh, he says something, let's say he says unemployment is, a, is at a record low. That's something we want to fact check, uh, figure out if that is correct. Um, the first place we go, we always ask the speaker for their evidence. So that's one of the things that PolitiFact is very transparent about. Whoever we're fact-checking, we always send them a message first saying, hey, you're being fact-checked. Usually a sign that they don't like us at that point already because uh, no one really likes to be fact-checked. I understand that. Um, we ask for their evidence because we want to know where they're getting their information from. And also, if they're a public official, 
we there's an expectation on our part that they should have the information, right? Um, if it's Joe Public, we can understand, but if you're an elected official and you say a factual claim publicly, you should be able to defend it. From there, we do our own independent experts, uh, independent research, talk to experts, write our piece. Um, we have very specific definitions uh, that differentiate between true and pants on fire. So uh, the, the cool part about PolitiFact is every fact check before it's published, every fact check before it's published is read by three editors who sit as a jury. And so the reporter does not decide the rating, it's the editors who sit as jury and decide. It's called the Star Chamber, <laughs> ironically, but um, reporters kind of hate it because you know they put their heart and soul into saying, I think this is false, and the editors might come back and say, no, this is mostly false, or this is half true. Um, we have the same group of editors who do most every chamber uh, or jury, uh, which I'm on. Um, it's a lot of fun. Sometimes they take 15 seconds to 30 seconds. Sometimes it goes over days, I swear, because we fight over the littlest things, which is what makes me mad when, when people criticize us because criticism is fair and sometimes it's warranted, but I don't think they have any idea how much work goes into actually deciding is this thing mostly true or mostly false or half true. From there, we publish, we have a corrections policy. Every, every time we make a mistake, we put it online. You can look at, you can even, if you're really into it, you can search by our corrections, see everything we've ever screwed up. We try to be as transparent as possible. We list all of our sources. All of our sources are on the record. We actually have a bibliography, which is crazy. Um, our reporters hate that too, thank you. Uh, but uh, it's a process that we've learned over time works for us because we have to be consistent and be able to replicate our process. So like uh, the best case scenario is if Neil or I, three years apart, said the same claim, it should get the same rating. Again, it's not science, so I can't guarantee it, but it should because the process should make it so. Okay, I'm going to let you rest your voice, Thank you. uh, and I'm going to uh, move on to uh, Dean Ferrier. Uh, she uh, started her journalism <laughs> career actually in Florida at the Daytona Beach News Journal. Uh, those of you who've been around Florida for a time know that it was uh, really a very robust, uh, strong, um, a smaller newspaper in Florida, uh, but a but a, a great uh, a great source of news and a real asset to its community. Uh, after some time in roles outside Florida, most recently at Ohio University, last August, uh, she was selected as the new dean of the Florida A&M journalism program uh, and uh, started that job on October 1st. Uh, along the way, between those two um, uh, terms in Florida, uh, she founded Trollbusters, uh, which you see a little bit on the screen. Uh, it's a service that helps journalists fight online abuse, and she's going to tell you some stories about that. Uh, she's a pioneer in digital content um, and online education, and uh, as well as digital identity and uh, reputation management and media entrepreneurship. Uh, she was named by Media Shift as one of the top 10 journalism innovation educators to watch. Uh, I do want to tell you, uh, and she will tell you, that there are likely to be some uh, disturbing things in what she shows you and tells you, 
And uh, I, I figure we're, we've all uh, seen perhaps worse than this, but I do want to warn people who feel sensitive to those kinds of things now. But I, it's a great pleasure to introduce to you our newest member of our community, uh, Dean Michelle Ferrier. Good evening, everyone. I'm going to step up here a little bit because I'm a bit shorter than some of our other presenters, and podiums tend to hide a little bit of the presentation that I'd like to do and being able to see the audience. So thank you for having me here this evening. I'm going to be sharing with you a little bit of the work that I do. So as Neil mentioned, I'm fairly new to Tallahassee, but not new to Florida, and definitely not new to journalism. I was in Daytona Beach 10 years ago um, after a long career in higher education, working in journalism, as well as being a columnist in other places, and came to Daytona Beach 10 years ago almost um, as a columnist and a night news desk editor at the Daytona Beach News Journal. Um, some of the work that I've done since then, uh, in the past 10 years, um, has been looking specifically at our online spaces, understanding how we communicate, how our culture and communication is changing as a result of the digital environment, and some of the dangers and challenges moving forward, not only for free speech and freedom of expression, but for democracy here and abroad. Um, the work that I've done um, has encompassed um, chapter articles dealing with uh, misogyny online, specifically looking at the gendered aspects of what we're seeing online, um, as well as in the Committee to Protect Journalists' Attack on the Press in 2016, uh, where I told the story of what happened uh, to me in my career and why I'm where I am today. And most recently, uh, published this past fall, a global study that was done of, of journalists around the world who are experiencing online harassment, helping to dive more deeply into understanding how, why, and the impact of this kind of behavior on the individual journalist as well as on the news enterprise itself and our ability to be able to speak truth to power. As I mentioned, I was at the Daytona Beach News Journal February 4th, 2003. This was my first column at the Daytona Beach News Journal. I had come on board as a night news editor. Um, I had formerly, uh, formerly worked at uh, NASA for many years um, as a, a junior scientist there in various capacities and um, was very sensitive to space and the space mission. And so on the night news desk the day that the Columbia shuttle exploded, um, I told the story of what it was like to share with my children what was happening on the screen and how to tell them about the deaths of um, these astronauts who I had watched grow up in the space program um, die in that explosion. Um, it also, if you remember, coincided with um, our country's um, pre-entry into the Iraq war. And the column goes on from here to question, I questioned my role as an adult, how do I explain to my children what they're seeing on the screen as young children. They were um, under the age of 10 at the time. The columns I wrote were lifestyle columns. They weren't in the editorial page. They were on our life page. They were columns about my life as a person in Daytona Beach. 
So they were fly-on-the-wall stories about my kids growing up in the community, teaching them to ride bikes and then how to drive a car, um, going on field trips with them to various places, etc. as a mom and as a young professional in the area. But the columns I found very quickly, as I said, began to be build a connection with my readers, um, bridging the divides of geography, of dem demographics, of age, gender, and race, to bring people together in the community. I was the first African-American columnist at the newspaper at the time. And if you recall back in those days, columnists were the only ones that had their faces in the newspaper. So this was pre-social media, um, and the beginnings of social media. And what I got in return from some of my readers was the kind of rhetoric that you see on the screen. This particular, um, so many of us as journalists get critiques. You didn't write well. The facts aren't correct. You misquoted me. But what began coming to me in the mail were very personal, directed attacks at me as an African-American, as me as a woman, challenged me and my family, and talked about the growing um, discomfort of a portion of our population in the country who was watching at that time um, the rise of uh, the Democratic Party, as well as President Obama during his first term. So I predated President Obama in the columns that I wrote and was a columnist for about six years, writing in this capacity, also working as our um, managing editor for our online news communities, understanding and helping our news organization understand what this new digital environment was and how we might be able to engage with our audiences online, be able to help get information out and be able to share information with them. But the letters that I received kept coming. What you're seeing are letters that came from me from one particular letter writer that persistently wrote letters to me over the course of three years. Every couple of months, there'd be this little letter bomb in the mail. And when I first got the first one, and maybe even the second one, I'd shrug it off as many journalists do and say, this is just part of the job. This is just part of the work that we do, and we should ignore it. However, the letters kept coming, and the letters kept becoming more and increasingly threatening. I learned how to shoot and carry a gun. I began disguising myself, changing my routes to work, because I worked on the night news desk from 5 till 1 o'clock in the morning, and I was the only African-American in the newsroom at that hour, among the maybe 20 or so staff that were still left at that time of the night. And the solution for my company was to make sure I took a buddy out to my car with me when I left the newsroom at the end of the day. My children had cell phones before anyone else. And if you remember those little firefly phones that just, you could call mom, you could call dad, <laughs> the, and you could call emergency, that was it. Um, they had cell phones. And um, as the letters continued to come, um, I became angry. I said, here I am through my columns trying to bring people together, and somebody's trying to tear me apart and tear us apart 
and draw a wedge in what I was trying to produce and bring together in Daytona Beach. So I went to the local police, the local FBI, CIA, FBI, NABJ, National Association of Black Journalists, all of the journalism organizations. I went stomping into every conference saying, what are you doing to protect journalists? What are you doing to protect us so that we can continue to tell the stories of underserved and underrepresented communities, of immigrants and people on the border, of stories of our rural communities and the challenges that we face in healthcare? What are you doing to help us be able to continue to tell those stories? My case, locally, we were never able to find out who was writing these letters to me. Um, I'm not quite sure if the police actually ever investigated. I actually probably did more to investigate my own case because as a journalist, when I got mad, we get in action. So I began investigating and looking at what this letter writer was sending, began to look at the language that they were using, began to reach out to my columnist colleagues and others around the country saying, are you getting stuff like this? What does this look like for you? How does it affect you? Who are you telling about this? And shouldn't the rest of the world know that we're under attack like this? And many of my colleagues, some of them male, would say, well, if you're a journalist, you should expect critique. This, my friends, is not critique. This is death by a thousand cuts. And so every couple of months, I would get these letters coming to me, and it would just destroy my life and my family's life for several months afterwards as the police patrolled my home, as my kids would have to be shuttled back and forth to school under protective cover um, to make sure that we could continue to be safe in our community. It rose to the level of the Committee to Protect Journalists, some of you may be familiar with that organization. They work internationally to provide physical safety as well as help to um, develop policies and protection for journalists overseas. They also are on the front lines of journalists who have been killed or murdered as a result of state-sponsored violence in their communities. And here I felt like this little journalist in Florida going to them saying, I've got this problem with this letter. And where should I go from here? Some of what we're seeing is, as Aaron described, organized hate. 10 years ago, I recognized and began sounding the alarm that what we were seeing was a growing movement of activity across our country and around the world of direct attacks against journalists designed to pick us off one by one. And what we see are not only these attacks on the journalists themselves, death threats, rape threats. Doxing is where they find your personal information about where you live, where you work, your family members, who you're connected to, where your children go to school, where you go to church. And they send that to their organized groups to harass you in physical space, to intimidate you to what's happening online. Most recently, just last week, Several of my colleagues in BuzzFeed and other organizations were leg let go. It's always a dangerous time for journalists in that space trying to find a job. But these organized groups online use that opportunity to mount a campaign um, telling journalists that, well, you're out of a job, maybe you need to go learn to code, 
or as we see in the middle imagery, um, images, violent images of beheadings and other images that come from ISIS. These aren't just coming through Twitter, Facebook, they're coming through email, they're coming through back channel messaging, videos of beheadings from my women journalists and female journalists, um, videos of rape, videos of murder, and this happens on a daily basis, on a tweetly basis sometimes, as I like to say. Just recently, in the Parkland shootings, and I want to give you an example of just the sophistication of this, and I'll wrap up. In the Parkland High School shootings here in Florida, I actually was still in Ohio at the time, but uh, the work that I do through Trollbusters is monitoring the social media monitoring space, looking at and reaching out to journalists who we see look like they're being trolled online, providing them with coaching and support about how to handle it, working with them when the platforms to try and get their accounts reinstated, when they've been what we call shadow banned, when the technologies that are designed to protect us, like muting and blocking, are used to shut down our voice. So these groups will use those very same tools and select a block, and a journalist's account can be suspended for 24, 48, 72 hours at a time or more where they're unable to do their work that we do actively online. Here, Alex Harris was using social media as a social sourcing tool to find um, witnesses and others and get information after the Parkland High School shooting. This was literally minutes and hours after, just hours after the shooting had occurred. And this is a practice that we use in journalism is to use these sources to get information. Somebody took a tweet that she had sent out, photoshopped it, changed it to make it look as if she was intimating some kind of racial bias in her probing, and then resent that tweet back out, that image back out, and rallied the troops, as we said, sending it out to multiple groups online, etc., to try and get them. She spent over four or five days defending herself online, instead of doing the work that she was supposed to be doing in her community, trying to dissuade people from discrediting the work that she was doing online. So what we see is active ways in which we're using both text as well as visuals that can't be caught by our algorithms to try and discredit individuals, discredit the news enterprise, and ultimately to silence and sow dissent in our public voices. The work that we do in Trollbusters to wrap up um, is to help people navigate that space. You see on here in the very bottom row, somebody's posted an insult or somebody's posted a critique. Those are legitimate kinds of activities and feedback that we want from our audiences. Although we see things and it progresses from libelous contents all the way up to an explicit threat. I am going to come kill you. And frankly, our laws here in the United States and abroad are not sufficient to be able to deal with the kinds of attacks the sophistication, the speed of the internet, the ferocity of the hate that is trying to be sown to create division between us as people and as communities trying to make a way. So moving forward, um, I do have a little bit more information. I'll leave it here for now. Um, I did do some recent research. As I said, on the daily, journalists are getting this, on the daily. It happens regularly, and trust me, 
um, when we have to have a Senate resolution to say that journalists are not state enemies. Um, we have a, a target on our backs every moment of the day. I don't tell people at dinner parties that I'm a journalist anymore, and many of my colleagues don't either, because that automatically draws higher. So I'm here to hopefully elaborate a little bit more on both the technical ways as well as the psychological ways that these tools are being used to manipulate us, to divide us, and to ultimately allow someone else to have control over our democracy, our freedom of expression, and our freedom of speech. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. Uh, I think uh, so that we can get on to toward audience questions, I won't stop to interrogate you further, uh, and we'll go ahead and let Bill uh, come up. Um, Bill Cotterell really needs no introduction. I said that one time at a meeting and then sat down, uh, but, but uh, at, I almost want he's already up here, so I might just do that. But uh, he began his career at the Miami Herald. Um, he reported in other cities around the Southeast. Uh, I believe you were in Atlanta for UPI for a time, and then uh, made the Tallahassee Democrat his home, um, and has been here for more than 27 years. He's covered the campaigns uh, and administrations of eight governors, uh, senators, state elected officials. Uh, somewhere along the way, he became known as the Capitol curmudgeon. Um, I believe it was not when he was in the Marine Corps. Um, he was inducted into the Florida Press Corps Hall of Fame in 2017. So Bill, be a curmudgeon. <laughs> Thank you, uh, thank you, Neil. I'm trying to speak up. Uh, I've had friends, reporters, who say they were born with a face for radio, and I was born with a voice for print. And, uh, but I think we've got good amplification here. I was really very uh, interested in what our both of our speakers tonight said. I uh, have been a PolitiFact junkie ever since I became aware of it, I guess shortly after it uh, went online. And I had not heard of uh, Trollbusters before, but I'm going to uh, log in tonight when I get home. That I was quite unaware that that sort of stuff. I, I thought I got an occasional, you know, crank calls or messages. Uh, back when I was a copy boy at the Miami Herald, uh, in around the mid-60s, during the Civil Rights Movement, there was a very progressive, enlightened editor at the Miami News named Bill Baggs, who was very well known around the South. And I never actually saw the rubber stamp, but I heard that he had one, or he would scrawl on racist letters that he received after he wrote an editorial uh, or expressed some opinions on state or local or national matters, he'd get hate mail, and he would use his rubber stamp that said, Sir, 
local lunatic is writing nut mail and signing your name to it. Thought you'd want to know. <laughs> Bags. And the man who told me this story, who worked very closely with him, he was dead by the time I uh, uh, heard the story, but he said a surprising number of people would call or write and say, no, that wasn't a local lunatic. I wrote that, you know. Uh, and of course, in those days, we didn't have the internet, we didn't have email, and uh, we didn't have, unfortunately, the, uh, the anonymity, I think, that makes a lot of uh, your hate correspondence possible. I don't think if you ran into somebody at Publix, they would say the things that they feel free to say uh, if they make up a screen name. But uh, what I encounter mostly as a daily news, I, I retired in 2012, but as a reporter, and I'm sure Mary Ann and uh, others, uh, Bob Sanchez and others have encountered just doing daily journalism, people will uh, feel very free to call up and argue, or now we've got, uh, with email, uh, argue, and they are, first of all, extremely confident in their position. I've never, uh, I guess people who are in doubt don't feel confident enough to call, but I've never had a critic message me or call me and say, well, you know, you might be wrong about that. I kind of wonder if, no, they know just as sure as can be that life begins at conception and that Barack Obama was born in uh, Nigeria or someplace, you know. They, I mean, they heard it on Infowars or someplace like that, and they are absolutely certain, and they're also absolutely certain that I'm not only mistaken, but that I'm an agent of some foreign power that is deliberately trying to deceive them. And one of my favorite, I've heard this many, many times, one of my favorite lines in trying, I'll argue politely if someone wishes to uh, discuss it, and something that I'll message somebody or say on the telephone, defending my own position, like, well, the, the birther thing about Obama coming from uh, uh, Nairobi or something, Kenya. I'd say, well, where did you get that? And they'll say, well, it's all over the internet. Uh, oh, well, hell, if somebody took the time to type it on a keyboard, it's gotta be right, you know? And if I'm not going to run with it, I must be covering. There's no logical explanation otherwise. And uh, it doesn't have to be anything huge. It can be local little uh, trivial matters. But I think in the past election, we saw a great deal of that with Andrew Gillum. I think the Democrat did a very good job. They weren't, I don't think, beaten on any stories about the Community Relation, uh, Redevelopment Agency. They weren't beaten on any uh, FBI investigation stories. They were out front on some of it. I don't think anybody could accuse us of really covering. I see Steve Stewart getting nervous, but no, uh, getting eager. But I don't think that the Democrat really tried to advocate in any way for Mayor Gillum uh, or attack him. And, and I don't get a lot of it. Uh, Jeff probably got a lot more than I ever did uh, in a single day. But both sides, uh, the Gillum defenders, when are you going to leave him alone? You guys are just trying to destroy him. And 
the other side as well. Another thing that I noticed that perhaps is aided by social media or just the rapidity of spreading things around, an awful lot of people, I think older people, read newspapers, unfortunately. Uh, we probably have a fairly educated readership and over 40, probably, uh, probably over 50. And, but I'm sur constantly surprised at how many of them don't recognize something as opinion, even when at the top of the page it says opinion. But I'll get an email or a phone call saying, I read your story in the paper Thursday, and I'll patiently say, well, it wasn't a story. It's, the, I can't believe you would be so biased and so opinionated in that story. It's not a story. It says opinion right there. And uh, last Thursday was a good example of this. I wrote about uh, not the incident in Washington with the Covington, Kentucky uh, boys from the school. I wrote about the media reaction and how I had said in the headline that what you see depends on where you sit. And people who were already uh, some conservative Republican friends of mine, who I know to be uh, on Facebook, I know them to be uh, conservative Republicans, they uh, linked to my column or they sent me uh, direct comments saying, well, you didn't mention that the guys in the red hats did this, or you didn't mention that Mr. Phillips did this, or that he was discharged from the Marine Corps, uh, never left Kansas. Why did they? I wasn't writing about that. And this afternoon, I sent a guy a note saying, basically, you know, my column didn't purport to be the history of journalism since the 1400s when Gutenberg invented movable type. I was talking about how the media handled one incident last weekend and how so many readers responded to it. And uh, I also gently pointed out that his angry note to me pointed, uh, kind of proved my point that what he saw depended on where he sat. But another thing that I was interested in that uh, Aaron mentioned about fact-checking, in the 2016 election on the national scale, the national stage, I think the media for the first time started using the word lie. It occurred, I noticed at first, on the birther thing, when uh, Donald Trump rolled back his earlier thing about Obama being born in Kenya, and he said, of course, you know, that originated with Hillary Clinton's campaign. She started it. And the New York Times lead said, Donald Trump retracted a lie Thursday and topped it with another lie. And the Washington Post also had a similar uh, lead, and it impressed me that in now 52 years of journalism until then, I had never seen the word lie used outside of quotations. I had never seen something called a lie in print. And I think this is a good trend. Obviously, people will misspeak or they'll have some wrong information that they impart, but uh, I think the media are wise to... Uh, Call a lie a lie. This has been obviously uh, aided and abetted greatly, uh, multiplied a thousandfold by social media, Facebook in particular, and Twitter. And it, uh, 
amounts to what uh, a term that I just recently heard not too long ago called confirmation bias, that uh, if you were already, if it, anything that sounds too good to be true, we always know to suspect. And I think that uh, a lot of us are very uh, prone to believe uh, things we see in, particularly in social media, that are repeated often enough and that make us feel good about what we already believed. And I think that's when we probably ought to be a little more suspicious of things that sound uh, too good or too bad. If we hear that, you know, Nancy Pelosi is doing something terrible, uh, maybe we should be suspicious of that. And with that, I think we're pushing time, so I'll yield it back to Neil. Thank you. I've never been good at wearing a hat, so uh, um, I'll try this. Uh, thank you, Bill. Uh, I think that uh, I'm, I, I do want to ask one question, but uh, we want to move in just a couple of minutes to uh, to your questions for uh, any or all of the members of the panel. I wanted to mention one thing I discovered. Um, uh, I was uh, at an advisory board meeting at another journalism school uh, over the weekend and end of last week, and from one of uh, Aaron's colleagues learned of an app called FactStream. Is this now fully released? I mean, I downloaded it from uh, the App Store. Yeah. So uh, yeah. this is an app uh, called FactStream. You can download it. Um, it's not a PolitiFact app. It was built... Uh, by uh, Duke University, a group called the Reporters Lab there. Um, right now, there are three American fact-checkers using it, us, factcheck.org and, and Washington Post. Um, we will be live fact-checking the State of the Union, which has been postponed till a week from today. Um, and so uh, there will be in the app uh, a way for you to kind of watch live during the uh, speech our fact checks pop up in real time. It is not live, I, I have to say this, but we, it is not live fact checking in that we're like the IBM Watson. Um, but what it is, is because we're full-time fact checkers, the three organizations, we fact check the president and statements from the administration a lot. Uh, and so we are prepared to uh, essentially re-adjudicate uh, claims that he might make uh, during that uh, address. And so we're able to do that in real time. Uh, and so you'll be able to watch it and get within seconds. If he has said something that he said before and we fact-checked it, we can put that together. Uh, so that's what we'll do that in real time. But the app is available now. I think they're going to push one more update. So you might have to get an update before next Tuesday. But if you have it, you're in a good, you're in a good spot. Uh, it's good all the time because really what it does is it's a feed, essentially, of all the fact checks from the three big American fact checkers. So you can watch everything that all of us are doing. So it sort of scrolls through. You can also do a search. So you could search for <coughs> Trump, for Obama, for whatever term you wanted to use on here. So uh, a nice little find. Uh, I want to ask one question before we go to the audience. Uh, Michelle, I'd like to ask you, uh, you have... Uh, young people coming through journalism program uh, into a world, Bill Cotterell would have known it as the deadline every minute world of UPI, United Press International, but things seem so much faster and more complex. Uh, what, what, what attracts young people, for one thing, to this profession, and what do you tell them about truth and about fact-checking and so on? 
Well, I think uh, what we see primarily is students are attracted in two ways. One, they're either attracted because they've seen TV anchors on TV, they respect the work that they do, and they're interested in being on TV in front of the camera and presenting that news and information. That is typically their first exposure to journalists and the work that they do. And so they're attracted to being in that space. The second type of person is one that um, is mission-driven. Um, I always consider and tell my students that journalism really is a calling. Uh, I don't think anyone would live through or go through the kinds of experiences that I and my colleagues live through if we didn't have a mission of service to bringing truth to our communities, regardless of the makeup of the residents of that community. And I believe that of most of my colleagues across the country, that they're devoted to that effort. And so we see those two types of students who come into our space. What I tell them is that this world is very different and very much the same as it has been in the past. That there are divisions, that there are racial divides, as well as gender divides, as well as age divides, and other kinds of things that would try and separate us. Um, and that they need to be aware of how the digital environment, whether it's algorithms and how they work, artificial intelligence, the ways that we're interpreting data, the ways in which we're reading, have changed because of the technologies and helping them to understand that as journalists, um, they are in a very difficult position, um, as everybody else is, in trying to discern truth and lies online. In trying to protect themselves, um, I actually am suggesting to some of my younger, particularly uh, women, men as well, but women, um, to consider using a pseudonym and a pen name, just as women did when journalism first started in this country, they used initials and they used men's names to be able to get their, their stories in the newspaper. What we're seeing are concerted efforts to shut down those diverse voices from these organized groups. And that flies against the kind of transparency movement that's also been um, kind of paralleling the past 10 years as well. But this offline behavior moves into physical space. We've seen that with the Capitol Gazette shootings. We've seen that with the murders and Khashoggi and what's happened with him overseas and the lack of attention and focus on uh, the deadliness of doing this kind of work. So I try and educate them to understand that this is a mission and a calling. And if you're in it for the celebrity status of it, um, you will be sorely disappointed. Uh, moving forward in your career. But those that do stay the mark and continue to try and tell the stories of underserved and underrepresented communities and help communities be able to see themselves, I just try and help them see around the corner to understand that the world that we're in right now is very different, that their identity is literally being crafted in every tweet and every artifact that they deposit online. It's being used by someone. Nothing's free. And what you're trading is your identity, your reputation, and your life by playing in these online spaces. So be careful. Uh, look at ways to be able to protect yourself online. 
think about carefully about what you're putting online and use um, some professional discernment to determine when you should engage, how you should engage, and when you should just walk away. Okay, thank you. Uh, let's go. Liz uh, has the microphone and we'll find people. Looks like Steve has a question. Actually, Bill gave a shout out to Steve Stewart of Tallahassee Reports, who we invited here tonight, because we know Steve would have a unique perspective on our topic tonight. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Um, no, uh, first of all, two, uh, one question, but a point. Uh, I had a story with Tallahassee Reports we were, during the campaign. We were politifact-checked and uh, um, did not uh, know about it. I got a call, and I was like, you know, my heart sort of sank because credibility is very important when you're writing stories. And they said that it was, it was mostly false. And I said, oh my gosh, I got to get an attorney. Would I get to my office and find out what's going on? So actually what it was, it was a political fact, uh, a fact check of a politician who used our story to run an ad. And the ad was mostly false. Actually in the fact check, they said the reporting was correct. So that, I thought that was a pretty interesting way of changing the emotions of you know, getting fact checked. <laughs> my question would be, uh, on, and I'm more interested in a little... Yes, I yes I do. Um, not going to mention any names though. Um, <laughs> following, I'm more interested in local news. I checked out at the national scene a long time ago, but on the local news um, around the state and I guess around the country, we're starting to see in more my views, opinion pieces, <coughs> not by professionals like Mr. Cotterell. Um, and I think that is one of the things that is starting to sort of drive communities apart because you start getting these uh, opinion pieces. Um, in my views or your turns that um, if you read through them, a lot of times are factually incorrect. Newspapers don't have enough time to go through and check them. And the response is, hey, it's just a my view. But what's happening is that these messages are getting, you know, multiplied to get on social media. And I think that sort of raises the blood, you know, the blood pressure of the local community. I'd like to hear your feedback on that with, um, I don't know if they're doing it because it provides more content or is it is it a new approach? But I'm seeing that happened not just here, but in other local areas. There's more opinion pieces that are not from professional journalists that are uh, causing problems. I'll, I'll, I'll briefly speak about that, I think. Um, I, what I would say is that I, uh, newspapers um, are trying to do anything and everything they can to attract readers. And so I think that to the extent that you're seeing that as a phenomenon, to me, it's a suggestion that, yeah, they're either looking for content or looking to attract more people into their community of readers. You know, I look at it, the way I would say is that a newspaper has the responsibility of the material it publishes should be factually accurate. If it can't guarantee that and it doesn't have the resources, so if it doesn't have the resources, it should hire, well, it should hire reporters who they trust to write factually accurate stories. One. Um, if they're going to pull uh, stories or reports or take opinions from the outside, they should be factually accurate or they shouldn't be run, in my opinion. Um, and so I, I, that's what I'll say. Um, I'll add to that that um, in the 10 years since I was at the Daytona Beach News Journal to now, we were in the recession where um, newspapers really were challenged by both the technologies um, and an aging readership, um, as well as new tools and news players coming onto the market. 
uh, some of the things that we did were activities around community engagement. So whether it was similar things like this, having town halls, using online spaces to be able to connect to readers, and in other things, we were intending to engage with new and different audiences than those that were our traditional readers. As part of that, and thinking about this online space, remember I said columnists were the only ones that had their face in the newspaper up until that point. So when we began and made the choice to begin to use social media, to use social media as a tool for engagement, now every report, reporter's face, everybody in the newspaper's face was available and accessible online for people to check. The other side of that engagement trend was also um, transparency. Again, to win back the trust of our audiences, not only engaging them in the issues that they were interested in, but also being transparent about our sources, about where we got our information from, expanding our source pools, etc., to bring more transparency to our work. Online, the goal was, just like our columnists, to bring uh, authenticity to our voice to help our connect to our readers by bringing a personal side of ourselves to those readers. And so almost as reporters ourselves became columnists, they might straddle that line, as well as bringing in the ugly term, user-generated content, to open our, our printing opportunity online and in the paper to other voices that had not been there before. So that idea of authenticity, being able to be transparent about your opinions was a good thing um, for on the journalism side, but the backlash to that is no privacy, much more visibility. Those journalists, like columnists, becoming um, almost public figures. Um, and a, a transparency and a lack of a barrier between their public and private lives uh, that bleeds through everything that they do. And so I know as a columnist in Daytona Beach News Journal, and I'm sure Bill and others as well, you know, we'll have the experience of being in the grocery store and somebody going, I read your column, it's great. Or the opposite, somebody coming up to you and saying, I didn't like what was in the paper and what you put on the front page. And I'm like, hey, I'm a columnist. I didn't put it on the front page. But because you're the face of the paper in the community, you got all the good and all the bad. So I think those issues of what we tried to do to recapture and gain new market and audience and eyeballs and all the other words that we use to talk about our readership, um, we went to the opposite to be as transparent and open as possible and began to blur the lines between opinion and fact in a way that made it very difficult for our audiences to understand uh, what was factual, what was opinion, um, everything from sponsored content um, that people are paying for to put in the newspaper. Our readers and many of our readers don't understand the signals that are in our newspaper of what a dateline means, of what that opinion label means, and when it goes out in a tweet, it's abbreviated such that you can't get that context. And so we're expecting them to carry the load and understand when they see something in their newsfeed and interpret whether it's real or false without all of the other kinds of signals and things that we may have had even in the printed paper to help them understand. Opinion is on the opinion page. Stories are someplace else.
Well, you know, I think the other thing is that we have a lot of um, sort of people and organizations who are not, who have, who have names that don't seem like what they really are. I mean, you'll have sort of the Association for Tree Management, but it wants to cut down trees. I mean, just to take one example. So, I mean, you, you don't quite, you can't quite tell from their name who they are, and it probably adds to the uh, sense of confusion that people have. I think that's a responsibility of the editors to uh, make sure that this association really exists, that it isn't just a PR firm with a uh, uh, an email account. And But I, I like the idea of my view, as Steve mentioned, uh, uh, presenting, particularly with newspapers, cutting staff and cutting staff, including in the opinion section. Uh, I'm glad that we have outside voices and... Uh, we should require a degree of actual credentials, not just the fact that this is a person with an opinion. Uh, Bill's over there with Rick. You got us a question? Thanks, Neil. Um, this has been a really uplifting topic of discussion. <laughs> <laughs> um, but very important, a great panel on a very important topic. Um, I was hoping that you all could comment on your, your thoughts on the uh, prospects of the 2020 election and beyond when it comes to disinformation and election interference, both here and domestically as well as from foreign countries? Um, it's a two-part question. One is in, in the general sense, but then the second part is there are new emerging technologies that make even more powerful statements for disinformation, such as um, the deep fake videos, where you can use AI to alter a video to make a presidential candidate say or do anything. And we're all wired as human beings to just accept that seeing is believing. So you can even have something refuted later, but the impact made upon seeing a fake video is has already been done. Uh, I was hoping you get you could comment on, on those two pieces. Okay, let's do real short because we're at 745, so we want to get as many questions in. Anybody want to address that one? I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll go, I'll real go quick ahead. on the okay. deepfakes and maybe you talk about 2020. Um, uh, deepfake video technology um, sounds really scary. You should be worried about it. I'm not too worried about it yet because quite frankly, they're not good enough at making the deepfake videos yet. So... Don't panic about it yet. Okay, so that said, um, 2020 election, I'm, I worked in Ohio with my students on election land, which was a project of uh, multiple uh, organizations and uh, high, higher education institutions as well as Politica to do real-time uh, verification and analysis of tweets and social media that were coming across our feeds during the election cycle, um, surfacing up problems at, at polling places, uh, people that were asking for certain kinds of ID, etc., all to try and surface the kinds of um, voter suppression efforts, et cetera, that were happening. That simultaneously is happening on the uh, social media side. So we see that happening in real space. Um, as far as the, the technologies, et cetera, um, we have had a devil of time. I work um, internationally. Um, some of the work, in fact, four years ago when I did establish Trollbusters, most of the work I did was overseas because we began to see a rise in nationalist movement across um, the world. And a lot of the attacks, et cetera, that we saw were against state-sponsored hate in other countries where we were supporting journalists in those spaces. Um, and so we saw and continue to see the same playbook being used now that is going to be in effect for 2020. 
Um, what I didn't mention is that the work that we do is not only in supporting the journalists moving forward, but we dive into those very ugly networks to understand where the troll nests might be and begin to look at how they're operating. And rhetorically, these groups are very, very savvy. They actually have generals, they use social media to create what we call smart mobs, where they bring those folks together to perhaps bring down a server at a particular time. Um, I've watched as the United Nations has put out reports around online harassment, and they have done uh, what I call hashtag bombing, where they will coalesce around that hashtag to the point where the United Nations threw up their hands for two weeks and said, we can't deal with the counter-narrative that's coming from these organized groups. They have playbooks where they literally break down for their um, army um, what to say, who to attack, when to join in on the attack, what to say, what to circulate, etc. These are very sophisticated organizations, whether it's here in the United States or other state-sponsored actors. Um, we're not talking about the one-off kinds of troll activity that many of us would, would brush off. Um, they are definitely intending to create discord, to separate and divide, to keep us from coming together. That is the sole purpose of this activity is to make sure that we do not come together to fight for democracy and freedom of speech in our country. Okay, let's go out here. One more. Hi, I'm Paul DeRiviere. I'm a journalist here locally. I worked with Bill, the Tallahassee Democrat, for a short time. Um, I wanted to talk about um, what Bill made brief reference of, which was uh, influence in politics, namely, and media, namely Russian influence. And I say that with big scare quotes because I think it's largely, if you'll excuse the phrase, trumped up. Um, there are, uh, I, I largely think Russia, the Russiagate speculation online is largely like QAnon, but for liberals. Um, and uh, I wanted to talk about, in an age of paranoia, whether it's QAnon-type paranoia, Russiagate paranoia, how do you even get people to listen to the truth? How do you get people to listen to a, an agreed-upon or shared reality? How is that even possible? <laughs> Yeah, I think, I think that's really difficult. Uh, so at PolitiFact, uh, one of the things I struggle with most is the people who read us, um, and by the way, more people visited PolitiFact.com in October uh, 2016 than Disney.com or NFL.com. So, yeah. So for at least one month, we're more popular than Tom Brady and Mickey Mouse. That's what I tell everybody. But You were both trending. <laughs> um, the people who read us are the people who need us the least. So how do we reach the people who need us the most? Um, when, in fact, there is also a disinformation campaign about PolitiFact and the, and the value of facts, and you have a president who, like him or hate him, you can see one thing he's clear about is he believes the media, broad brush, is false, wrong. And, and the base of supporters who will support him will agree with that position. And so I think it is very difficult. Um, our strategy at PolitiFact is to try to take it to the local level. Okay, so I'm not gonna, uh, we're gonna fact check the president, of course, but I don't, I don't think I'm gonna convince people if he's false, that he's actually false, or if he's true, he's actually true. But I think if we fact checked uh, something that's happening in Tallahassee, talking about the roads or development, the political lines don't matter as much. And you can see it with your own eyes. 
So, you know, we did this experiment. We went to three new states for us, Oklahoma, uh, Oklahoma, West Virginia, Alabama. The first fact check we did in Oklahoma uh, was talking about, uh, I think, road construction in Oklahoma. Um, not a Republican versus a Democrat issue. And our first fact check was shared by the governor of Oklahoma on her Facebook page because she liked it that much. And I would guess we fact check things about her that probably other Republicans who don't like her probably shared on their pages. So I think if we can get people talking about facts at a local level, things they can see with their own eyes, maybe they can begin to trust facts that are farther away and more distant. One more? Okay, let's do a couple more, and then I want to give everybody up here sort of 30, 30 or 40 seconds to make one last closing statement before we go. Hi, I'm Vicki Sims, and I think like most everybody here, I am passionate that a free press is just essential to democracy. But I, I want to address the economic model, uh, which you know, has changed hugely in the last 30 years. And that's part of, I think, why we're in kind of a crisis, is we, don't, we just don't have the kind of boots on the ground of, of journalism doing what journalism does best. And I, how do you see that going forward? And I wanted to ask specifically, how is PolitiFact funded? Sure. Um, so PolitiFact was created by the Tampa Bay Times newspaper in 2007. We spent uh, 11 years there. Uh, last January, a year ago, we moved to the Pointer Institute. So we became a nonprofit part of the School for Journalists. Um, we did that so we could survive, quite frankly. Um, the newspaper, the Tampa Bay Times, as you know, is a great newspaper. Um, a lot of good reporters up here covering the legislature for uh, us. Um, but the newspaper is struggling, uh, as ne every newspaper in this country. Uh, so as a nonprofit, we rely basically on a couple different pots uh, the first, for the first time, we asked uh, readers to donate to keep the f site free and available to everyone. PolitiFact.com membership, if you're so inclined. Um, that makes about 30% of our revenues this year. Um, another 15 to 20 is from big donors, big grants, stuff that might get us in trouble with some people. So um, our biggest funder is called the Democracy Fund. They're funded by a guy, the guy who created eBay, Pierre Omidyar. They try to be very, very nonpartisan. Pierre has some now pretty partisan views, so we have to worry about that. It's difficult. Online advertising, it's not a good market, but it does make money. Uh, sorry for the ads on the site. I wish I could get rid of them, but I can't. And we sell our content. So um, one thing that we've learned is that other journalists can't afford to do this work, but they're willing to maybe pay a couple nickels on the dollar to get it. Uh, so we, for instance, we sell all of our uh, content to Scripps television stations. There's 28 around the country. Um, uh, we sell uh, to some gatehouse newspaper properties across Florida, uh, including the Daytona News, Beach, News, News Journal. Um, so it's a mix. There's no easy way to do it. Um, I think the funding, the, it is difficult. Journalists, uh, all newspapers are moving from a, an idea of selling subscriptions to having a customer to having a, a participant, and that's the way it works. The one thing I would say is if anyone's really rich here, um, and maybe if you don't have to stand up, but what I would say is that really rich people love to support their arts, local arts community, right? Like they love to say like, I'm gonna go donate to the arts, because I think that's important for a community, and it is. My argument would be newspapers are just as vital, and so the really rich people in every community should be thinking about what can I do to help the newspaper? And I don't know what that is. Maybe it's buy it, 
okay, but maybe it's, maybe it's like buy them pizza. Maybe it's like buy advertising. I don't know. But I think that, honestly, newspapers are vital to our communities, and they should be supported like the public service that they, in fact, are, right? Um, and so I think we, we could all do a little bit more. Um, but again, if you're really rich, you can also come see me. I don't know. <laughs> Let's go to Bill back there. Dr. Ferrier, first, thank you for your boldness back in Daytona. Thank you for bringing that boldness to Tallahassee. I think it's apropos that we're talking about Jackie Robinson in your here and what you've been through, what you've done for uh, media and for journalists. My question is a little bit tangent, but it's given the state you had in Daytona, in, I don't think that things have gotten safer for journalists with the anonymity and the violence that we're seeing. Do you feel like having a handgun back then was necessary for what you've seen now, do you advocate your students to look into getting a handgun for personal protection now? I always say that God had a purpose in mind for me, and I didn't see it at the time. Um, I was, at the time when I was at the Daytona Beach News Journal, I was also pursuing my PhD at UCF in text and technology, deepening my understanding of online communities and algorithms. So when they came after me, I knew what to do with it. One of the first projects that I started back in Daytona when this was happening to me was a project called Spot Hate, where I was basically taking and scooping content from newspapers across the country and geotagging them to geography so that we could see where there were waves of conversation coming up across the country and kind of get a weather map and a reading of what was happening across the country. So the combination of Tools and technology has always been a part of who I am and why Trollbusters um, is doing the work that it is today because I have this unique combination of experiences um, and knowledge and training that has put me in the place where I am right now to be able to be of service to democracy um, writ large and then to journalists as a whole. Okay, last question. Not the last. We're good? Okay. Um, we are going to then, as John McLaughlin would say, exit question. Um, let's just take uh, 30 seconds or 40 seconds and offer a last uh, comment or so. Bill, you want to start? Well, rather than comment on our topic tonight, I'd like to thank uh, Village Square. I, I was reminded when I came in, it, it, it occurred to me that I covered a news conference over at the Capitol Press Center 12 years. I asked Joy, how, how old is the organization? She said 12 years, which surprised me. But uh, I remember they had a news conference. I don't remember who the founders were. And they said, we're forming this organization. We're going to promote civil discussion and try to uh, bring community together to talk about things uh, on all sides. And I remember thinking at the time and probably saying to others in the room, yeah, well, be interesting to see if they ever have a second meeting. And um, so I'm very, I'm very glad to be here 12 years. I'm, I'm very glad to be here 12 years later. Um, I would say, having come from Ohio most recently, where I lived in a town when the students weren't in it of 5,000 people, um, I did work in communities, I'm sorry, villages, of less than 500 people. Um, the other piece of the research work I do is around media deserts, understanding the effects of communication in communities where there is no newspaper. And I try and um, want to leave you with 
the challenges that we face in communities where there is no newspaper. Many of our rural communities, our urban communities, our underserved and underrepresented communities, our low-income communities, those people that we need and rely on to be part of our, our civic engagement and to help move our communities forward are not getting good local information. I just had a call last night in a small community of 2,000 people where the gentleman says, I don't get local news here. When the fire bell rings that there's a fire in town, I have no idea what's happening, and I don't know unless I'm out on the street and find out day later what's going on. These are the folks that have very limited media diets. It may be broadcast, it may be radio. Their newspaper and the local news they get is from 90 miles away in Columbus. So as we're talking about these issues and the challenges of fake news, they're compounded in these small local communities that don't have access to fresh daily local information to be able to live their lives. And the challenges that that puts on top of communities that may not have broadband access, literally, I have to drive, as I heard on the radio here in our communities here in Florida, um, 90 miles to access a dentist. I know those challenges because I've lived them. And so um, I, as we're moving forward and thinking about how can we remake a communication system that works and is inclusive for all of us, I'd ask us to really think about our neighbors in smaller communities who don't have regular news and information. Think about how they live their lives and how we might be able to remake an infrastructure that perhaps is more of a utility, public utility model along the lines of NPR, PBS, and some of the other ways, or funding models um, from European countries where there's taxes put on devices and other things that go to fund journalism at the local level. We need to be more creative because the only way to fight fake news is with more news and information that's truthful that can get to people in their homes and on their devices. Thank you. And I'll end with really three pieces of research about fact-checking. First is from a guy's name, uh, Brendan Nyhan and uh, Jason Reifler. Uh, fact-checking makes you smarter. Uh, people, no matter what political affiliation, gender, age, were showed two pieces of news. One was presented as a fact-check. One was presented as like an Associated Press story. They read them both. In every case, in every kind of crosstab, the people who read the fact check retained more information. They were able to process it better because we explain it in a more methodical, detailed way. Cool. Uh, fact checking also scares politicians. Another study by the same politicians, uh, same researchers, Nyan and Reifler, uh, looked at where we had PolitiFact partnerships in about a dozen states. And they went to the state legislators in those states and they grouped into three groups. First group was control group, nothing happened to them. Second group, got a letter saying, hello, it would be really nice if you were honest because, you know, you're doing this for public service and the citizens would really appreciate you telling the truth. So please be honest and tell the truth. Third group got this letter. PolitiFact is in your neighborhood. They're watching what you say. And if you tell a lie, they will light your pants on fire. <laughs> it's, it's true. Guess which group was least likely to tell a lie? The guys who got the threat. The third bit of research, which I just concluded right now, is we need more fact-checking. 
that's not scientifically like what do they call it? Uh, we didn't put the team of yeah, we didn't put the team of researchers together to, to but we need more fact checking. Uh, and I hope uh, you'll join us on the journey and be our fact checking watchers and help uh, support us uh, wherever we go. Thanks. Um, so the. Okay, so Rick and Mary Ann and Brian, there's going to be a letter in your mailbox. <laughs> the um, one thing I drew from the evening uh, is that uh, truth is more than what we see, um, and uh, a lot of times truth eludes us. Uh, the uh, incident with the video over the weekend sort of shows that there are many views. Uh, I just came out of Chicago, where the Jason Van Dyke murder trial. Of, he was the officer accused of shooting Laquan McDonald uh, 17 times and had videos that cast doubt on his story. But uh, the truth often eludes us. Uh, and when we uh, can't quite figure out what's true and what's real, the least we can do is try to gain understanding. Um, so I'll thank Aaron and Michelle and Bill uh, for helping us see our world a little more clearly tonight. Uh, thanks to all of you with your questions and for being here and caring about what happens uh, to truth um, and uh, trying to develop common goals for our community. Thank you, Liz. Thank you, Bill. And thanks to all of you. Have a good night. Hey there, it's Vanessa again, your podcast host. Well, that discussion was certainly informative for me. So much to think about with all that. And here's my confession, I've already been on PolitiFact's website tonight looking up all sorts of random stuff. So interesting. And also just really important to dig a little deeper before we get locked into our positions. If this discussion intrigued you and you're looking for more on a similar topic, be on the lookout for another throwback episode that will come out later called A Local Press, Ghost Papers, News Deserts, and the Future of Democracy. Subscribe to the Village Squarecast in your favorite podcast app or on our website at villagesquare.us slash squarecast. That way you'll see that local press episode and other episodes when they come out. Also, check out episode one for a little Village Square 101 with Liz Joyner. You can find the show notes page for this episode with links to resources mentioned at villagesquare.us slash squarecast. You can also subscribe to our newsletter to keep up to date with all of Village Square's activities at villagesquare.us. We appreciate you listening to Truths and Trolls. Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon, and thank you so much for listening to the Village Squarecast. Cast.